0: The Federal Reserve is in focus again. They've already raised interest rates once this year with the expectation of it happening at least once more, maybe two times. As for the institution itself, it is still a bit of a mystery as to how they do what they do. Sure, we do hear from Fed chairs like Janet Yellen and, in the past, Ben Bernanke, as well as from regional Fed presidents in this age of the 24-7 news cycle. But this is still an institution that, to a degree, missed the signs leading up to the 2008 financial crisis. Danielle DiMartino Booth was an advisor to the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank and to that institution's president, Richard Fisher. She talks about issues surrounding the Fed in her new book, Fed Up, an insider's view on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. She's also founder and president of Money Strong LLC, based in Dallas, Texas. Danielle, welcome to the show.
1: Great to be here today. Boy, the, the pressure's on to, to give you good five minutes every five minutes.
0: Well, that we, yeah, we want to make it hard to pare down the interview uh, to, to that five <laughs> minutes. Um, I, I want to start with, uh, obviously, playing off the title of the book. Uh, what is wrong with the Fed right now in your mind?
1: Well, I think the Fed is uh, overpopulated, if you will, by a singular school of thought uh, that that has in the past blinded it to uh, crises as they're coming our way because they have such a unitary mind frame. Uh, and, and a way a, a singular way of approaching monetary policymaking.
0: So then what did they miss? Let's go back to 2007 for a minute. What did they miss? What were the key signs that, 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 uh, that they should have picked up on that maybe not have, would have fully prevented the crisis, but at least would have tipped them better off?
1: Well, Ben Bernanke said that it was important to know of the fire code, um, but that he would rather be the fireman. And I found this comment of his to be very insightful because the, the, the thinking has always been, since Greenspan, this, this, is, this was born in 1987, but the thinking has always been that the Fed cannot do anything to address a bubble, even if they have identified one. Right. They can only come in in the aftermath of the bubble and clean up the mess. And I think that that philosophy is inherently broken.
0: So to be able to try and jump ahead of this, what does that take in this day and age?
1: Well, I think it takes a, a broader appreciation. Um, Richard Fisher and I, we both have our MBAs in finance. We both started, started off on Wall Street, and we had a, an appreciation, but, not, uh, but we weren't intimidated by the financial markets. But we certainly had an appreciation for how the financial markets interacted with monetary policy in addition to economic data and i think it's having a more holistic view that would have helped policymakers see what was coming right but instead of studying junk bond spreads in addition to quote unquote inflation below target they were just looking at the economic data and that's why they got sideswiped again and again by the way because it happened in uh, it happened in 2000 and it happened yep. in um, you know with with the nasdaq bubble as well
0: so then do you think that, that the 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 raise uh, the rise in rates that the that the Fed just did and the potential for for as many as two more later this year is that probably a pretty good path that that they are kind of laying out or are there some even uh, ideas that you would like to to tweak possibly off of that?
1: look, I think it would have been a great idea to be on this aggressive monetary tightening path about three years ago okay and that is when Janet Yellen's favored Labor Market Conditions Index, which she actually created, yeah. was gaining momentum as opposed to February the 1st marked the anniversary of the third longest economic expansion in post-war history. And I think that it's, it's clearly apparent that there are a lot of economic data, car sales being the primary one right now, that are telling us that this economic cycle has peaked and rolled over. And so you have to sit back and ask yourself, why now? Unless it's purely playing catch-up or playing politics.
0: Daniel DiMartino Booth is the author of the book Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you're more than welcome to send us a comment via Twitter. We'll bring it up on the show at bizradio111, at Radio 111 or my Twitter account, which is at Loney 21 Uh so in terms of the relationship and the, and the place that the Fed has right now, you do talk a little bit about how uh, the Fed and the relationship it has with with Wall Street right now, is it, is, it, is it something that really needs to be addressed here in the near future?
1: Well, the way I look at it is the tail wags the dog. Because there is, as I said a few minutes ago, an underappreciation and a lack of understanding of the financial markets, more often than not, we end up with the tail wagging the dog. Yeah. In other words, central bankers have become very reactive to the financial markets as opposed to being agnostic to them and truly adhering only to safeguarding their dual mandate.
0: You would like to see the, uh, the, the Fed be... Well, transparency is one thing, but you would like it to be a situation, it sounds like, from uh, going through the book and, and reading some other articles about it, where more people, more Americans could better understand what the Fed is doing and why they are doing it, correct?
1: Absolutely. Look, I think that there are way too many conspiracy theories out there about the Fed precisely because it's misunderstood. There's really nothing complex. And there are, this, this is not some kind of secret order of, of bankers out to destroy the world. I always giggle and get a kick out of the people who all they end up doing is feeding the public's fear about the Fed. But at the end of the day, they leave it as a black box. It is not a black box at all. These are people who are studying mainly the Keynesian economic school of thought and applying it uh, to monetary policy. We're talking about over a thousand PhDs if you include the people who are contracted to work at the Fed. And again, study after study has shown that what is broken globally in monetary policymaking is that so few schools of thought enter central banking, aside from the more is more, the lower for longer, the quantitative easing, the unconventional, even though the Japanese have clearly showed us over the years uh, what it means to push on a stream.
0: So when you hear uh, comments that uh, like President Trump made in the run-up to the election about the federal Reserve and and, and kind of it being a, a political entity uh when you hear comments like that wh- how do you react to them?
1: Well I happen to be of the opinion that that a lot of the sins and a a lot, a lot of the reason um, that the economic recovery has been as as terrible as it's been I understand it's a recovery but you're talking about, since we came out of recession. It's nothing to write home about. But I'm of the opinion that the Fed has facilitated misfeasance on Congress's part by taking the onus off of fiscal policymakers to do their job. They've made it too easy for them by keeping interest rates, whatever the fiscal borrowing costs of the country were last year, 1.8%. It's ridiculous.
0: Yeah. What I mean, realistically, if if this had been started, if the if the changes had been made, you know, three years ago, like you suggest, do you think we'd be looking at you know two and a half to three percent growth on on a fairly routine basis?
1: I do. I also think that we might have gone into a recession. There's a very high probability okay. that that would have been the case. But okay. that's okay. That's why business cycles are cyclical, because they end up achieving what capitalism does. They end up taking the the, the wounded buffalo out of the herd and making the operating environment for really efficient competitors that much better when you come out of it, laying the groundwork for, as you suggest, much faster growth.
0: We're talking with Daniel D. Martino Booth. Your comments welcome at 844 Wharton 844 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call, or at BizRadio on Twitter, uh, at BizRadio111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Uh, I'm, you mentioned Ben Bernanke a second ago, and, and uh, I would like you to kind of, in your time with the Dallas Fed, and and uh, just think back to what, what some of the things that were being done, and, and how do you— review the job that Ben Bernanke did a, as chair of the Fed in his time running that operation?
1: Well, I think Ben Bernanke came into the office uh, with, with very noble intentions. But working there, and the entire time I was there is when he was the, the Federal Reserve chair, um, I, I came to reflect back and think that instead of being noble, it became willful blindness on his part. Uh, There were a few people during 2008 who were saying, you're treating the patient with the wrong medicine. We don't need to raise, we don't need to lower interest rates to the zero bound. The financial markets are plagued by a liquidity freeze. And it's the facilities that the New York Fed deployed to open up the credit markets that resolved the acute issues that were facing the markets at the time, not taking interest rates down to the zero bound, which introduced a whole host of distortions into the markets but it was it was Bernanke's insistence and I'm it, it was Bernanke you can go back and read the transcript yeah. it was Bernanke's insistence that the zero bound be a starting point for unconventional monetary policy making that got us into the soup in the first place
0: before him was was Alan Greenspan, and and he's kind of a seen as a a, a legendary figure uh, by a lot of people. You write about uh, about the impact of, of Mr. Greenspan uh, in this book. Uh, take us into your mind about uh, about him and, and kind of his place in this whole process.
1: Well, he's the one who he's the one who made the rules. He wrote the rules book. When you consider the fact that August of this year would have marked his 30-year anniversary of entering the Fed, he entered the Fed two months before the mar- markets crashed. Yeah. And it was his reaction to the 1987 market collapse that set the basic philosophy of central bankers inside the Fed going forward, and that is that you you make sure that no matter what happens, investors' losses... Um, that you put a, a, a floor under investor losses. In the book, I write about the so-called greenspan put yep. that was born, you know, placing a floor underneath your losses as buying a put option would yep. in the market. But I, I say that it, it was the establishment of the greenspan put um, that really did put investors in the driver's seat at the expense of your average working day job.
0: You also talked
1: Greenspan. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm going to jump back in for just a second. here. Yep. Greenspan's biography was released um, after my entire book had been written. Yeah. But his biographer, who was basically embedded with him for two years, came out with a conclusion after speaking to Greenspan, that Greenspan didn't want to disappoint the politicians and he didn't want to disappoint his revering public. These are things that he has said and regrets that he has in terms of the bubble mentality that he's been more outspoken about since he left office.
0: Yeah, Sebastian Malaby is actually somebody we've interviewed on the show uh, here, uh, who wrote the the, the Greenspan book. Um, your former boss, uh, Richard Fisher. Uh, you talked briefly about him and and some of the philosophies that uh, that, that you uh, that you share with him. Uh, we see. I see Richard quite a bit on on TV these days, talking about various elements. Right now, is Richard well? How do you gauge Richard and the job that he did with the Dallas Fed?
1: Well, I have tremendous respect for, um, especially when you go back and read the transcripts um, of the sheer level of pushback that he encountered. Year after year after year, FOMC meeting after FOMC meeting. There were yeah. he had several allies along the way. Jeremy Stein being one of them, who I, I find to be a fantastic individual. I've met him several times. He's just he's wonderful, wonderful academic economist, but again of a different school of thought. Charlie Plosser at the Philadelphia Fed. Um, there were other people fighting alongside Richard Fisher, but I have tremendous respect for the fact that he never he never was kowtowed by the armies of academics.
0: How much is the Federal Reserve, even though it says that it is not, is it a a bit of a political entity?
1: Oh, I think it's absolutely a political entity. Right. And one of the individuals who's just announced he's going to be resigning, he had his Obama Presidential sticker on the back of his SUV the entire time. You know he's driving into the garage at the Federal Reserve. Another one of the individuals who's still on the board publicly gave to Hillary Clinton's campaign. Well, I'm not making a political statement in any way, shape, or form. But but the individuals, the the leadership of the Federal Reserve is a, Reserve is mandated to be apolitical.
0: 844 Wharton is the number to give us a call. 844 942 7866 if you'd like to join in with the conversation, or you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney21. We go to the phones. Les is on the line. Les, go ahead.
1: Hey, Dan. Uh, I have a question real quick. Does the uh, author feel that the Fed is taking a, we're an American? institution, or we're a, a global institution, as to when they make decisions. So I guess the real question is, do they make
0: decisions based on what's good for America or what's good for okay. the globe? Okay. Danielle?
1: Well, I don't think that the Fed has a choice anymore. Uh, what happened in August of 2015, uh, when the People's Bank of China, um, when, when they devalued the yuan, that really did change the rules of engagement for every central bank in the world. There was once a time that the Federal Reserve could make monetary policy in a vacuum solely for the United States of America. That is no longer the case because, as we learned during the subprime crisis and as the Chinese reminded us, we've become a very globalized, interconnected financial system that is susceptible to systemic risk.
0: Les, thanks very much for the question. Greatly appreciate it. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six is the number to give us a call. I wanted to get back to the political end of uh, things for a while because – I mean it I find it interesting and obviously everybody that is a a regional fed president is going to have their you know there's people that they support politically uh yet it, it is supposed to be an institution that is kind of devoid of that yet there is there is so much impact that that comes out of the Federal Reserve from you know, things that happen in Washington or things that happen with the economy or, as you just alluded to, that that happen internationally now. It, it's almost an institution that can't avoid from being political right now.
1: Well, that needs to change. Yeah. It, it, look, the, uh, like him or not, if you want to have a secretary of state who's not going to be intimidated by Middle Eastern leaders, then appoint somebody who negotiated with all of them throughout the Arab Spring. There are, there are intuitive ways to bring in individuals that, who do not have an agenda, who, uh, who are far enough along in their careers to not be trying to espouse to pol- any one particular political leaning. They're out there. And one you... of the things I write about at the end of the book with, with my prescriptions about if I was God, yeah. how I would upend the Fed. Not end it, but change the institution.
0: Right. Well, get into that a little bit more, because that was going to be one of my one of my last questions to you. I mean, what are the things that the Fed really, in your mind, should be thinking about changing to, to make it a, a better entity as a whole?
1: Dan, we're making every five minutes count here. Yeah. Um, look, I think that the 1913 economic map of the United States no longer applies. The district lines of the Fed need to be redrawn. Yeah. I think that one of the main reasons that the crisis was so acute – uh, is that the San Francisco Fed was incapable of monitoring and regulating the the, the entire what used to be the Wild West back in 1913? I think we need to add a Federal Reserve District there. Yeah. I think the Midwest could logically absorb three, such that we came down to ten total, including the New York Fed, and at that point give them all give them all permanent votes as opposed to having districts presidents rotate off of voting every three years, the state of California, the state of Texas, the two largest in in the country, they don't cease to be relevant economically every three years. And I think the presidents should have a permanent vote as such. And I would also cut the mandate right in half, undo what was done in 1977, which obviously would take an act of Congress, but take the Fed back to having a singular mandate of minimizing inflation, making sure that the dollar in your wallet buys tomorrow what it would buy today. Um, those are just some of the things. And, as I mentioned earlier, putting independent practitioners who've been on the receiving end of interest rate policy, right. populating the Federal Reserve with them as well, mixing it up some.
0: and the policies and the and the the, the data that they are really kind of aggregating and and following to make these decisions, uh, it, it sounds like that 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 process needs updating as well.
1: Oh, absolutely. There's there's actually a funny scene in the book. The book reads well. I'll, I'll toot my horn, but that's that's what people have told me. I tried to make it entertaining as well. Otherwise, it's like watching paint dry. Right. Uh, but but Stanley Fisher's first uh, vice chairman Stanley Fisher's first meeting, he raised the question logically enough. Why don't we use the CPI? Why don't we use the consumer price index? Engaging yeah. in inflation. Yeah. That's what that's what that's what affects me. That's how I live my life. That's how my children live their lives. Is based off the CPI. And you know, one Fed staffer in the meeting raised his hand and said, well, if we used anything but the core PCE, our models wouldn't work anymore. <laughs> to which James, you know, Jim Bullard quipped at the time, he raised his hand and he said, let me, make, let me get this straight. This is how we make monetary policy? Crap in, crap out? There's an acknowledgement inside the Fed that a lot of the ways that they gauge economic growth and price stability need to be revisited. It's right. well past time.
0: Uh I'm going to give you 10 minutes with Janet Yellen in a, in a closed room. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, keep, keep it keep it nice. Uh what do you tell her? I mean, outside of what outside of what you just what you just laid out I,
1: I, I tell her it's high time that she go get an executive MBA in finance from Wharton. Uh, look, there is a there, – there, she has – she does not understand banking supervision regulation. If you see her testify in front of Congress, her eyeballs are apt to roll into the back of her head. Yeah. And, and she, I don't think she really wants to understand a lot of the things that are essential – for a Fed leader to have all of the knowledge that they need to run the institution. She's a labor economist, and her focus tends to be on that second mandate of maximizing employment, but that has blinded her to the the fact that trying to pull that next marginal worker back into the workforce is going to cost the economy more in the end because of the financial stability that low interest rates bring about.
0: So she runs her term through, I think it's mid twenty eighteen,
1: January the thirty first.
0: Oh, even earlier than that. <laughs> what
1: the Stanley Fisher's end, uh end of June. Stanley
0: oh, Fishers I was going to say, who 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 do you give if you're uh, if you're uh, going to Las Vegas? Who are you uh, putting as the uh, the early candidate to replace uh, to replace Janet Yellen?
1: Well, uh, my former boss's name has come up, as yeah. has that of Kevin Warsh, as has that of uh, John Taylor of Stanford, of the Taylor rule. Uh, you know, I, I, I'll throw something in there. I think John Taylor's a brilliant man, and I think that he's got great ideas, but I would be remiss to have the Fed become an institution that was driven by one model
0: right? right. in order
1: to be, quote-unquote, disciplined. Again, you need a wide variety of viewpoints. It's mandated in in the 1913 Act that the president appoint individuals from a diversity of industries and geographies. I think that that's the one part of the 1913 Act that we should keep and adhere to.
0: I'll tell you what, I've, I've I've heard your former boss on many occasions in interviews, and I think he'd be a pretty pretty good choice to kind of fill that role. I think he'd, he'd do a great job. Uh, Danielle, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, it's a fantastic book to go through. I greatly appreciate your time today.
1: I appreciate yours as well. Great conversation.
0: Thank you. Danielle DiMartino Booth, the, the book is Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge of Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.